from Nashville, Tennessee. You are listening to On Background, presented by Civic Point. I'm Tom Lee. Before we get started, a word about our podcasts. At Civic Point, we work around public decisions and very public decision makers all the time. While few of us will be Speaker of the House or Governor or a CEO, we all watch what they do. And so we wondered, how do they do it? Where do they get their ideas, their vision, or sometimes just the guts to do something? What's in their background that makes them leaders today, and how might we learn from it? So, each episode, we'll introduce you to some of Tennessee's most compelling decisions and decision-makers. That's why we're here, and that's why we're glad you're here, too. So, let's go on background. The House chamber in Tennessee State Capitol is not quite the same room as when it opened in 1859. The spittoons and cane-back chairs are gone, replaced by oaken desks and leather seats. Lobbyists have to stay outside, and no one has used tobacco, at least not the smoking kind, on the House floor for a long time. And then there's the electronic vote board. High on the chamber walls, the board is an innovation of the 1970s. It shows every member's vote as soon as it's cast. Green light for yes, red for no. There are hundreds of votes every year, year after year. And on all of them, the speaker calls for the vote in the same way, in the same cadence. We're voting on Senate Bill 1. All those in favor, vote aye when the bell rings. Those opposed, vote no. Has every member voted? Does any member wish to change their vote? Mr. Clerk, take the vote. Beth Halteman Harwell owes her speakership to many things, but one of them is surely that cadence. Because on May 22, 2002, Speaker Jimmy Nafee called it differently. Trying that day to pass Tennessee's first income tax, Nafee called for the vote. And when a few more red lights than green appeared on the board, Nafee kept the board open for two hours. Republicans, most of whom opposed the tax, were furious. Though they eventually won the battle that day, for a decade they kept fighting the war about that vote and that vote board until 2010, when they unseated 14 Democrats, brushing the balance of power in Tennessee a deep shade of red. Then a new speaker ascended the House dais, one of the few things unchanged in that room from 1859. And while there had been other, though not many, Republican speakers, not one of them had ever been called Madam Speaker. Speaker Beth Harwell, great to have you here. Thank you. Good to be with you. I want you to start in Pennsylvania, which is not Nashville. Not Nashville. How do you get from Pottstown <laughs> to become Speaker of the House? And can you do that in about two minutes? Yeah, there you go. Okay. That'll well, you know what? I did grow up in Pottstown, Pennsylvania. I was raised Church of Christ, and my parents wanted me to attend a Church of Christ college. So David Lipscomb University in Nashville, Tennessee was the closest one to home. And it so, was David Lipscomb in those David days, Lipscomb. not this fancy Lipscomb no, University nope, business. No, nope. So came all the way down here for that purpose. That was a different place, Lipscomb in those days, from the Lipscomb of today. Uh, Was that a culture shock, or did you feel like 
All right, this is where I should be. You know what? I absolutely loved it. I loved my time at Lipscomb. It was a great place for me. I skipped my senior year in high school, so I came to college young. I was like 16. And so they they have a pretty protective environment over there, which was a perfect place for me to just kind of go through some growing years. Good academic program. I made some lifelong friends there. Were you there when they were still chaperoning dates? <laughs> no, but we had uh, a, a very early curfew, like 10 o'clock was our curfew. Uh, when I was there, girls were not allowed to wear pants to, clo- to school classes. Um, uh, you couldn't wear shorts unless you were going to an athletic activity. So people would walk around in shorts but carrying a tennis stick, but having no idea going to play tennis, you just carried the tennis racket with you. <laughs> I have a friend who uh, was there in a different generation, and she described uh, the rules of dancing, you know, the rules of engagement. Uh, well, there was no dancing when I was there. We were not allowed to dance. <laughs> you couldn't even leave room for the Holy Spirit. <laughs> None at no, all. No, no, no dancing. But we did have Bible every day and chapel every day. And you know what? I'm really proud that I have that background. I, I wouldn't trade that for anything, that knowledge. Well, I wonder how that shapes what you do. Because at some level, persons who take their faith seriously, find that it manifests them, it manifests itself in something. Mm-hmm. It may be their profession. It may be the way they carry themselves in their profession. Mm-hmm. How does that have a bearing on how you run the House of Representatives? Hmm. Interesting. Well, you know, I really was, it was really emphasized, um, uh, kindness and that you that you that it's Christ living in you so how you live your life is really a, a reflection on your relationship with Christ and um you know one of the things I always find a little interesting is how um sometimes in, in politics people talk a lot about well Christ called me to do this well the 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 fundamental Church of Christ is a very private religion between you and your Savior and so it's it's kind of a sacred type of thing you don't talk about it off cuff which is much more popular, culturally popular now than it was when I was growing up. So that, I think it does, has impacted me. I do. You've never, you've never worn it outwardly in your, in your public service. Right, right. But certainly it's, it's a critical part of my life, a uh, very influential part of my life and hopefully impacts how I treat other people. A church of Christ in Pottstown must've been very what, unique. A mission church, it right? Was, it Planted. was absolutely a mission church. How did you find it? Funny story. Uh, we went to church every Sunday, but we went to a, a predominant denomination up there. And my father didn't like to go to church. My mother was the one that made us go to church. She was raised a Southern Baptist in, in North Carolina. And she said, my family was always going to go to church. We went, my father would drive us. Then he would get back in the car and drive around town and pick us up when church was over. One time he was out driving around, he saw this new little church building and he went in just for the, cause he liked the buildings and he loved Pottstown. So he walked in to just see what it was like. And it was a church of Christ. Well, after the service was over, he met the young minister and he said, look, he said, I, I'm not interested in this. Don't want to know anything about it, but you know what? You seem like a fine young man. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to buy you a piano because you really need one. Well, the irony of that is because if you know it. every church has a piano, right, right, right. except At the Church of Christ, right? <laughs> and that started a dialogue and he just uh, really, he became a member of the church and brought my whole family to that. And as I remember the story, your father said, pick a Church of Christ school and you can go to it. And that's yes. how you got here. That's right. You finish Lipscomb and get your PhD at Vanderbilt and teach history for a while. You're known to be a reader. Mm -hmm. 
of histories and that you just devour them. <laughs> what do you gain from that? What What is it, other than a, a curiosity satisfied, what is it in those histories and those stories that either as a person or as a legislator mm -hmm. uh, helps move you forward? Well, you know, I think when you read about um, other people, whether it's in the political arena or others, you see their struggles, you you hear about it and you and you realize, like uh, I saw John mention books over there uh, on George W. Bush. I read that book and so much of that I knew because I, that's history I lived. I lived that. But just to see, he had a lot of failures in his life and he had a lot of personal hurt in his life. Uh, and just how he overcame it. And you don't really realize that. When you see a public official, you don't realize they have a life too. They have issues. They've gone through hurt. Um, and I, I always find that part interesting because it gives me a little bit of strength. You know, we all go through tough times. And the difference is how you end up on the other end of it. You know, do you come out stronger or not? You must know this, but I think I'm right about this. I think you are now the fifth longest serving speaker in Tennessee history. The job is one where an awful lot of people have done it for two years and not again. Yeah, yeah. And it must be something about that very thing of the challenges just piling up that mm -hmm, says mm -hmm. to people, I've done my time. Thank yeah, you very yeah, much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think you saw that in Gerald McCormick's decision. I mean, when I talked to him the day he made the decision, he said, you know, Beth, just yesterday, I realized I had spent four hours and 20 minutes talking to members about things that they were interested in. When you're in leadership, you represent your district, but you also have a... a and uh, for the Republican Party, 73 members that are calling you and telling you their thoughts and ideas. And so it does consume a, a, an enormous amount of time. It's a job that I love, and, and hopefully I'm trying to do a good job at it. But it is, it is work. It's challenging. You said when you were elected speaker that one of the things you were proud of as a House, that the House was capable of putting aside partisanship. Mm -hmm and acting on behalf of the best interests of the people of the state. Mm -hmm. Has that changed any over the years? Well, I think, I think the House was, it felt like it was much more partisan when I first arrived there, but of course I was in the minority party. So it always feels different depending on where you're sitting, right? Whether That's you're majority right. or minority party. I, you know, and I think now the challenge is just that, that we have in this state different interests. I, I, I do think sometimes the Democrat Party, because they are in such a minority status, tends to strike out a little bit more than they used to. Um, mm -hmm. And so I'm feeling that a little bit more. But to some degree, what I'd like to, what I've always thought the appropriate role of the minority party is, is to offer solution, alternatives, alternatives, not necessarily the partisan bickering. People really don't like that. And when you, if you ask anyone what they think of Congress, without a doubt, it's a negative reaction uh, because it's dysfunctional. And uh, I don't think that's what the public deserves. It has begun to feel like Congress is a talk radio show. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right, right. That you just have people who uh, have their talking points and they fire at each other from one side or the other. And the more extreme, the better, because that gets them more coverage. Outrage <laughs> raises money. Right. And gets media points. Right. A lot more than joy and happiness and mm -hmm, success. Mm -hmm. Right. It's exactly right. You know, I, I have to keep in mind, you know, sometimes the radio talk shows can be a little tough for the Tennessean. But then I think to myself, what are they going to do? Get up and tell what the truth is, which is the state of Tennessee is well managed. It's financially in a great shape. The pension program's solid. List, oh, we're fastest improving education. No, that doesn't sell newspapers or radio talk show. So they tend to want to emphasize the negative. You and I met the first time when you were first running. Mm -hmm. And I remember following you around Creve Hall, knocking on doors, 
uh, and and that process of meeting people and introducing yourselves to people and listening to them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Listening is still a key part oh, absolutely. of the job, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Politicians are, are, and lobbyists are known to talk a lot, but listening is at the core, isn't it? it? It truly is. If you want to be an effective leader, you have to learn to be a good listener. And one of the things I like so much about door-to-door campaigning is there's no filter between you and the voter. You're actually talking to them about what they're interested in and what they really think about what's going on in state government instead of going through the media or a slick brochure. You're actually talking to the person. And it's actually the best part of campaigning for me, except for dogs. (laughs) Well, that's right. You've you've had a recent encounter. (laughs) Yes, that's right. (laughs) And uh, healing, I hope. Yes, very nicely. Thank you. Good. That is so much of politics and, and frankly, so much from what we do in the government relations business tends to be organized around an interest. We come to you with an interest group's position or a business's position, mm-hmm. and and we say, "Gosh, we really would like you to adopt that position mm-hmm. uh, for your own." And and we can have a good conversation about whether that's a special interest or an actual interest. But but there is a difference, isn't there, with mm-hmm. the voter who says. I'd really like you to listen to me individually. Right, and right. You, you, you pull more from that, don't you, mm-hmm, then? Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. People should never underestimate the value they have when input. Um, you know, So very few people bother to be involved in the political process that those that do can have a tremendous impact. If I receive 10 emails on a particular issue, I think I have received a mandate from my district, right? You know, And, and I still always care more what my constituents think than any any representative of an industry. That's just, and I would say that's true of 99% of my members too. I heard you say in a speech once that the email in your office that gets read by you (laughs) is the one that begins, I am a registered voter and I live in your district at this address. That's right. That's right. That one gets read and responded to. You better believe it. You better believe it. So that's the value of being a voter. So you have three children. Mm -hmm. Youngest is uh, teenagers. Still. Yes. Yes. 16. And I think lost in a lot of the conversation about being the first woman to be speaker, uh, which is an important conversation is the fact you're also the first mother <laughs> and a mother of young children. Yeah. yeah. What do your kids teach you about how to either conduct yourself as speaker or, 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 or to, to conduct effective public policy. Mm. Well, they definitely have taught me patience. <laughs> I think any mother would tell you that. Um, but, you know, I, I tell this story sometimes when I'm speaking to groups. It really is a true story. Um, my youngest, when I was just a member of the General Assembly, we were out. She was about seven or eight years old at the time. And uh, we were out walking one Sunday afternoon. And uh, I, I, like all mothers, looked at Allie and I said, Allie, what do you want to be when you grow up? And she said, well, I want to be just like you, Mommy. I want to be a mommy and a Republican. And I thought that was really cute. And I, the, what, what sticks out in my mind was I just vividly recall those pretty big blue eyes looking up at me. And uh, I I've actually have a picture of my daughter with those eyes in, in my office. And I thought to myself at the time, I never want to say or do anything in politics. I wouldn't want that little girl to know I said and did. You think you've done that? I hope so. <laughs> You've said many times, and, and uh, I've, I've heard you say it publicly and privately, there are three things you look at when you are trying to decide whether a piece of legislation in front of you is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Talk about those. 
Well, I always want to make sure that it is it uh, keeps our state moving forward when it comes to educational reform. That's very, very important. I think it, we also need to ask, does it increase the size of government or not? I mean, we believe in limited government, or I do. Um, I mean, government should have limited roles and perform those well. And right along with that, I do think it's always important that we uh, remain a, being a very pro-business state, a business-friendly state. Uh, does it make it easier to own and operate a business in the state of Tennessee? We want that reputation. And by those lights, uh, would you? how would you adjudge the last six years? You know, I think we have done a tremendous job. Now, of course, I'm prejudiced, but I, I tell you, very few states can claim what we have. Um, we are experiencing growth, a uh, tremendous amount of excess revenue because our, our businesses, our people are doing well. And, you know, as, as uh, legislators, we didn't look for ways to spend that excess money. We looked for ways to return it to its rightful owners. Um, very few states can say we've uh, eliminated taxes and reduced taxes. And we've reduced the sales tax on food not once but twice. Uh, we've uh, done away with the gift tax. We've done away with the, the uh, death tax. Uh, so I am, we've begun the phase out of the whole income tax, all the while putting, prioritizing. And, um, you know, the great thing is when your financial house is in order, it gives you the luxury of looking at other things. So now we're looking at more money in K through 12 education, the most we've ever put in. Um, I mean, I just think we've got a lot of good things uh, going on. It will allow us to prioritize properly. Where does that come from? How did that develop for you? Yeah. Well, you know, I was, I probably really, um, came into politics under Ronald Reagan, right? So that was the president during my influential years. Mm -hmm. um, and, and one of the things about Ronald Reagan I respected is he knew who he was. And, uh, you know, the other thing I really respect that I think we need more of today, Ronald Reagan always had a smile on his face. He just wasn't an angry, upset man all the time. He didn't have to lash out at others. And that's missing in today's dialogue. And it's, it's a shame. I think it's cost us a lot uh, as, a, as a society. So I've tried to always be pleasant in my viewpoints and remain true to what, what has, I think, brought me to where I am today. What, what crosses a line for you? What, what is it in, in your work where someone crosses a line and becomes somebody, someone, you say, I... I'm really struggling to work with you. Yeah. <laughs> What's yeah. the fastest way to get on your bad side? Uh, misleading me. You know, it's really, it's really hard when you're speaker to get vote counts and know where people are on issues. And if someone misleads me, that's, that's tough for me to overcome. <laughs> Who are your political mentors? Who are the lights that you look to, to say, am I, am I following in the right path? Mm-hmm. Well, I mentioned Reagan, and I, and I think he was. I think he really influenced my generation, right? Um, I, I, you know, here in Tennessee, personal was Fred Thompson. I mean, Fred Thompson was one of the people that kind of paid attention to me and uh, helped me become party chairman and gave, kind of helped move me along. So I have a lot of respect uh, for his life and all the great things he accomplished. Um, we actually have a lot of good people that I've, you know, looked through to the years and think, that's a good role model, but definitely those two. Fred has an interesting moment in his career. It's in many ways uh, a catap two catapulting moments before Hollywood. Mm -hmm. He uh, serves on the Watergate Committee, mm -hmm. and he also is involved in the most remarkable transition of power we've seen in Tennessee when Lamar Alexander becomes governor, essentially three days ahead of schedule mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in order to prevent uh, a massive signing of clemencies by 
former Governor Blanton. Mm -hmm. And those two instances seem to mark him as an independent thinker, uh, even within the context of being clearly identified with with his political party. Mm-hmm. Is that something you admire about him? Certainly, certainly. You know, I, I think um, sometimes it's necessary to discipline your own, and I think he was willing to do that. Uh, and that says a lot about his character because that's not that can be a lonely feeling. And he uh, experienced that um, uh, more than once in his political career. He was willing to stake out ground that mm-hmm. was distinctively his. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He sure was. Great man. Is it possible for Tennessee to be distinctive in the ways that we'd like for it to be distinctive in the ways that you've identified Mm -hmm. in the context of a national political discussion that really seems to have upset a lot of people Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. from every end of the spectrum. Right, right. How does that distinctiveness remain? How 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 do you say, well, regardless of anything else, we know here in Tennessee or we believe here in Tennessee there's something worth preserving, worth hanging on to. You know, I think in most people's, and most Tennesseans' gut, they know we've got a good thing here. Uh, you know, I, I was at the speakers' conference. We had the speakers' conference here uh, two years ago. Everyone loves Tennessee. I mean, we've got a reputation of kind of being a great place to come and visit. Obviously, Nashville, but not just Nashville. I mean, people like the state of Tennessee. So I think we have that reputation, and I think Tennesseans are smart enough to know they've got a good thing, and they're really relying on their state government to maintain it. What's the best part about being speaker? And I ask that question seriously because it doesn't seem always that there are any good parts. (laughs) You know, I really do like my members. Uh, uh, I've got you know, I've made friends all over the state. I mean, I literally can go into any county, and I know someone that that is my friend. So I, I think I have a good rapport with my colleagues, and uh, that's one of the things I, I really enjoy. To be honest with you, I really do love public policy. I always have. Um, I put up with the political part of it in order to engage in, pub- in public policy. And so I've enjoyed working with the governor and some of his policy initiatives. Um, I like the job. Yeah, I'm not going to say it's not hard, but I do like the job. You like going to work? Yeah, I do. I do. Most days. (laughs) Like everyone else, right? You and I talked about a story recently that you've shared before. We had, unbeknownst to each other, the same experience watching the Watergate hearings in the summer of 1973. And, And you've remarked that for a lot of people, that was and had to have been a depressing experience mm-hmm. to see what the country was becoming or maybe had become unbeknownst to the rest of us. Mm-hmm. But that for you, it was uplifting in a way. Mm-hmm. How did that happen? Well, you know, I, I think I told you that was the, the summer my grandmother lived with us and there was nothing on TV but Watergate. So we watched it some together when I sat with her. And, um, you know, I just loved the questioning and getting at the truth and, uh, uh, that was when, again, I grew up in Pennsylvania, so I loved Howard Baker's Southern accent and told my grandmother that. And uh, here, all these years later, I ended up in Tennessee and got to meet him. So um, yeah, I, I, think, I think it proved that the system can work, that it can correct itself. Uh, and that's a good thing. That's a 
fresh word at a time when what we seem to often value in politics is the person who can just carry the talking points forward into battle and just hit them home, as opposed to asking questions and finding out facts and deriving the best result from just putting those questions mm-hmm. to. So I, I go back to your uh, test of good legislation. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting that you start from a premise of asking questions instead of a premise of, well, here's what I believe. Yeah. Right? That's a difference, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. I, I'm glad you noticed that distinction because it is a difference. I mean, I do like... Um, I feel it's important for members to bring things that are important to their districts and important to them personally, but it's, it behooves the whole body to ask the right questions, no matter what the issue is. So when you look out over the, the next decade or so for Tennessee, mm-hmm. where do you think it's headed? Well, I think we're in a good spot, and I, I do think we're headed in the right direction. I think we have our head on straight, and I... I uh, Again, I, I go back to when your financial house is in order, it really does matter. It lets you have the, the luxury of prioritizing where you want to spend money when you're not worried. And, uh, and I, so I'm proud of Tennessee for that. I really am. We're, one, we're unique in that state. That and wouldn't we be much better off if our nation could say the same thing? What do you think your grandmother would say? <laughs> I think my grandmother would be very happy I am where I am. I think she would love it. I do. Speaker Beth Harwell, thank you for your time. Thank you. It was fun. Thanks, Tom. From Civic Point in Nashville, Tennessee, you've been listening to On Background. I'm Tom Lee, your host and producer. Barry Richards is our editor and engineer. Our theme is by Josh Kramer. Civic Point is the government relations affiliate of Frost Brown Todd, one of America's 150 largest law firms with 12 offices in eight states, including Nashville. Nashville.